so listen mate, uh, you know take ownership of your of your failings but you know treat them treat them as a learning experience you know and it, it's okay to fail it's what's not okay is to think that that's the end uh, and um, uh, if I hadn't made that and I was very lucky to have actually um, you know received that advice early in my career Hello and welcome to another episode of the Great Business Minds Podcast, the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure. I'm your host, John Max Lima, and I use my experience as a digital infrastructure journalist to dig deep into business issues, but also get to know those who build our digital worlds. Great Business Minds is brought to you by Portman Partners, the premier executive search firm for the digital infrastructure industry. With 50 plus years of experience, no other firm can match their knowledge, discretion and connections with the best top-level talent in the sector. Are you seeking great business minds for your digital infrastructure business? Contact Portman Partners. On to our podcasts. Um, Our guest this week has a strong capital market background as well as a solid international track record with experience in startups through to large international businesses. He has also successfully conducted IPOs and raised private equity for their decent expansion projects across the globe. Josh Joshi is a household name in the data center industry, having started his career in the 1990s, just before the dot-com bubble imploded and dramatically reshaped the gaming board which had a heavy impact on Josh. But since then he has led teams across several businesses including Telecity, which became one of the first major data center M&As globally when it was acquired by Equinix. He has also led the financial efforts of European Player Interaction, which was later also snapped up by Digital Realty. Today, Josh is an operating partner for Digital Bridge, one of the world's most active investors in digital infrastructure, and he also serves as the executive chairman of Atlas Edge, Europe's newest hosting player. Um, well, Josh, thanks so much for coming on on the GBM podcast. Um, it's a pleasure to have you over here and on the show, and um, it's been a long time due uh, that I've been wanting to meet you. Um, maybe to start with, talk us through your life journey. How, where did you come from and how did you get into digital infrastructure in the first place? Great, thanks, Joe. And, and likewise, I'm, I'm excited to be here and, uh, uh, you know, and engaging with you. I have to admit, I was like, you know, I was um, uh, quite uh, interested when you reached out to me and I really uh, feel privileged. Um, you know, my grey cells are, are more of a resemblance to poor sign doo-doo than anything I would have thought anyone <laughs> interested in. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it, I think if, 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 you, if you think about who I am and, and, and my background, uh, you know, I'm a third generation uh, East African, actually, although Indian DNA, I, I was born in Africa and brought up uh, in East Africa. Uh, and, you know, that was, uh, you know, broadly speaking, uh, you know, it was... It, 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 this this concept of being an Indian in Africa, the you know a sort of uh, uh, brought up in a colonial perspective, going to boarding school, um, uh, it it brought in to me a deep sense of independence, and so you know, and, and that's why I mention it, and I, uh, a deep love of Africa, mm. uh, and and the sort of the red soil of East Africa. Mm. But it, it was uh, it's been. Uh, a long time since I've been back there. I, I, I left at, at the age of 10 to go to boarding school, uh, initially first in, in Africa. And it was, 
that was interesting because it was a um uh, you know a school full of full of boa farmers kids uh, uh and i was like one of only a few asian kids that were in there and uh you know let's just say i didn't enjoy rugby uh, mm. in that in that environment and then I came to the UK to, to boarding school uh, and uh, uh, spent time here. But, you know, but uh, don't, don't bring out any violins because, it, you know, I had a, it was an extraordinary journey where I learned a lot about being a conformist, uh, uh, going, you know, in a, a sort of private education and then heading back to Africa for my holidays and uh, having this extraordinary time, a really privileged childhood. Uh, and you know, I went on uh, to to do engineering at university, and uh, I, I had I made some lifelong friends there. Um, interestingly, I got I got to the end of my university course, uh, and I took four years to do a three year course. Uh, and my and my tutor at the time, Professor Ghent, said to me, um, Josh, you know, for God's sake, don't become an engineer because you're really rubbish at it. <laughs> well, this is honest. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it was good advice, and uh, <laughs> and you know, and, and so I I I didn't. Um, although I have to admit that that the the engineering education, the engine, the the analytical perspective uh, has stood me in good stead uh, for for most of my career. And then uh, I I went on uh, uh, to go into finance. Uh, and actually, through through the back door, ended up joining a, a firm called Arthur Anderson. Uh, and you know that that it's interesting. Up until that point in time, I was this real sort of conformist, climbing this sort sort of you know slippery pole, uh, focused on my career, focused on becoming a partner, and and that sort of thing. And and then this thing called the internet arrived and, and mm. this concept uh, of um, uh, you know, websites and email. And around 1995, as I was thinking, well, do I really wanna be a partner in, in a firm of auditors? Or you know, maybe I wanna go and do something for myself. And uh, there, was, there was WorldCom and MFS and they were merging and there was a lot of stuff going on in the US. Uh, and you know, someone reached out to me uh, and said, who was, who was at WorldCom MFS? And they said, listen, I'm trying to start this thing, uh, which was a, a voice reselling platform. And, you know, let's, let's get together. And, and you know, you're, you've got the, the, the finance background. I've got the sales background. Why don't we try and pull something together? And it was, it was, it was I don't know, perhaps it was an extremely scary thing to do, to like step back and say, okay, well, you know, do I sit here and continue along, you know, go and become a partner and my life is set or should I step back, take, you know, 50% pay cut and go and try and do something, for want of a better word, entrepreneurial, alternatively crazy, you know, and, and I, 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 my wife certainly thought I was crazy and I, <laughs> uh, and I, and I, I stopped and I gave up with Arthur Anderson and then mo moved on. And, you know, it was, was you know, during 1996, as we developed the, the business plan, we, we, we also worked with 
uh, uh, Telenor and Telia and IXC Communications out of the US. And we, we came together with a plan which was partially funded by them. And, and it was really about uh, voice reselling uh, and also building, think about prior, prior to that point in time, all, all the stuff that was going on that was being transported in, in Europe and around the world was on copper cables. Right? Mm. So fiber was only just being deployed, uh, certainly in Europe uh, around that time. And so we were working uh, as a sort of junior partner to Telia on the Viking network, which is about 22,000 kilometers of, of fiber around Europe. And so we, we started something called Storm Telecom at, at that point in time. And by the way, that's not the same Storm Telecom that was started by Tim Parsonson back in, in South Africa. So two different companies. His was far more successful than mine, I might add. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, so I, we founded this business, which was the beginning of, um, uh, you know, voice reselling, a low margin trading business and an investment in fiber infrastructure. We actually had 12 fiber pairs across the Viking network. And our goal was to, you know, we, we I remember we did a deal with something, something called Sycamore Networks, which is optical fiber. And uh, they had optical networking and we, we put in place this thing and we thought we, we were going to actually deploy optical gigabit ethernet and we, in fact we did that in, in 2000 and it was this journey between 97 and 2000 honestly I, I thought I was God's gift to uh, uh, you know infrastructure I was on this journey we, we went from zero literally nothing to, to 10 countries, uh, uh, acquired a business in the US. Uh, we had Soros uh, put you know, hundreds of millions wow. of investment in us. Uh, at, at the peak of, of our journey, you know, we'd gone from zero employees up to, uh, I think, 1,500. Um, and at the peak of our journey, this business uh, that was Storm Telecom was worth, on paper at least, you know, six to eight billion dollars. And that's twenty well, years ago, more or less. Yeah, correct. Yeah. You know, uh, over twenty years ago. Uh, our, our, you know, and we were, you know, and you know, my my co-founding ownership made me, on paper at least, worth worth a lot of money, and you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and and I, and I thought okay wow you know I'm good at this stuff <laughs> look at this this is great you know and uh, and I was walking on water but of course you know that was all rubbish uh, and you know at, at the turn of the century what happened was was that the bottom fell out of of uh, the market and you know the you know the the, the dot com and bubble, yeah. crash and the bubble burst and that's all common knowledge but I lived that and and in the following two years you know, I paid for every single mistake and act of hubris. And, um, uh, you know, we, we brought on all these employees. Uh, and indeed, you know, I was responsible for HR. I was responsible for legal. I was also, uh, uh, you know, partly responsible for strategy and obviously the CFO of this business. And so, you know, we went from 1,500 down to 150 employees. Wow. Uh, in, in that period, I renegotiated the debt four times, renegotiated the equity, uh, you know, and it was, it was a torrid period uh, where um, uh, you really found out, you know, mm. what business and, and what digital infrastructure, and certainly what, 
what I was about. I certainly what you know what I wanted to do. And, and we got to the end of 2001, beginning of 2002, and it became clear whilst we had money in the bank, uh, you know, there was no future. And and we were in the UK as a private business, and in the UK there's no there's no such thing as Chapter 11 where you can try and work your way through yeah. and at the other side. And so we went into the UK equivalent of that, which is called administration. And, and it was, and I remember it was Valentine's Day 2002, and I was like, we had a board meeting, and my my wife was uh, what six or seven months pregnant with our you know second child, and uh, I, I, I literally you know we went into that meeting and we said this is there's no point in continuing. Uh, what we need to do is to figure out how to actually, we had a voice business, a voice platform and a, and a, and a data fiber business. And how do we actually make the maximum of that and, and hand them over to others to actually uh, make them work? And you know, basically uh, in that five year period, you know, at, at that point in time, I'd lost everything, you know, bar, almost bar the shirt on my back. And it was, it was for me at least, and as, as a CFO of that business, you know, there's, you know, we went through this point where I was like, it, it, it was a real emotional roller coaster, and and many of the decisions that we'd made along the way, you know, they I owned many of those decisions, hmm. uh, uh, and they were mine, uh, and they were wrong, uh, and it was really fascinating as I, you know, and and we got to that point, and and it was it, it, the next point was was actually. Having made that decision, which was quite an emotional decision to make, we then moved on to, well, how do we, how do we, you know, uh, exit this? And uh, indeed, uh, you know, the voice business actually was sold to the to the son of a Russian oligarch at that point in time, and and that's relatively topical now. But that was an interesting sale process in those days, uh, and uh, the data, the fiber was 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 effectively bought by various companies that, that went on you know, uh, to, to make a success out of them, like Epsilon Telecom and others. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I was involved in, in sort of like what I thought was my, my what I, was really me, uh, and basically dissecting that and then passing them on to other people. You know, and Wavecrest communications still exist today, and, and I'm delighted by what the guys at Epsilon have done with the assets, and you know, they've done great things with them. But for me as a person, it was like, well, I, I'm a, and I was, you know, remember, classic sort of private educated British guy, you know, and in the UK, there's this thing, you know, this concept of bankruptcy of, of businesses and all those sorts of things. I was, wow, what am I going to do now? I think I, you know, I could, I've got no money. I've got nothing. How old then, are you then? Mortgage payment. You know, how, and, how old were you at the time? Uh, I was 30 wow. in 2002, so just, just 34, 30, 34, 35. Quite young to go through all that, um, especially with yeah. such a big business as well, 1,500 people. Um, it, was, it, was, it was extraordinary, you know, uh, in, in terms of, and, and they, these were good people, that, you know, people with the hearts in the right place. Uh, and, you know, and obviously we weren't the only business that went through that. And there were other businesses, uh, truthfully, that survived through that with, Truthfully, better management than, than I had, you know. And, and for me, it was a it was a, a great learning experience. And actually, was the found is basically the foundation of my career uh, in digital infrastructure. And a lot, and I learned a great deal. And and interestingly, I, you know, the the um, private equity lead at uh, Soros, 
uh, and the, uh, on the board. And he he sort of like came at me at the end, together with with the uh, executive chairman that was actually parachuted in to try and help me. Because during that journey, my the chief executive who we um, who I partnered with, you know, one of the things I had to do was fire him, you know, during that journey of that, you know, and what what the the Soros uh, uh, leadership guy said to me, his name's Ramasusu, and and he said he literally proverbially slapped me across the face, and he said, Josh, you know, wake up, you've just had an experience that is like gold dust, and in in other parts of the world. Uh, the U.S. in particular, you you wear these experiences like badges badges of honor, right? Because these things you can't pick up anywhere else. Now you know you can either go and choose to, you know, fall over in a hole and and you know and and drown yourself as I was doing at the time and and be in a gutter somewhere, uh, or stand up and actually try and figure out what you want to do from here. It's interesting how they 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 think or they taught that. Um, at the time, because it is those experiences that really build character and experience and knowing what not to do, it's sometimes better than knowing what to do. <laughs> it, you know, Zhao, it, it really is. And um, what, what, was, what was fascinating, of course, is when you're going through that experience, you have no idea, particularly when you're doing it for the first time uh, and you have no idea. And, and so I, 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 the other thing that, that they did and this was a really classy act and will live with me for the rest of my life, uh, was that they said, you know, yeah, we have, we, you know, you really screwed up, Josh, and, and, but you know what? We're going to give you a bonus because you've lost everything. We're going to give you a bonus at the end of all of this. And it was a bonus which allowed me to, to make my mortgage for the next year and to live my life. And they said, you know, take the time. They gave me a bonus. Uh, and uh, Ramiz and Bruno Devanza at the time were the two guys that, that precipitated this and, and they gave me my bonus for the year and they said go and go and figure out what you want to be right and that that allowed me to take a year to spend time with my newborn son uh, and my wife and you know repair those kinds of relationships and to figure out where I wanted to go and you know the one bill that I paid this is the journey between 97 and, and 2002 and as we were as we were nosediving towards the ground you know the one bill I paid it was a data center bill. And, and I was sitting there and, and remember, we built this fiber network, 22,000 kilometers of fiber. Uh, and there was this concept of, you know, well, what do I do to, um, uh, I want to connect to an enterprise. How do I actually do that? And, and the internet is not any in one network. Uh, and so there's this concept of on net and off net. And so we would go and and we wanted to connect, and this was right at the beginning. And, and I remember walking into uh, uh, um, a BT office meeting uh, in Redline Square at the time. Uh, and it was like, listen, we want to put our voice switch in your central office location because that's where, it, and they because that's where it's where we able to connect. And they laughed us out of the room, literally. And we only got that meeting because because the chief exec was ex-BT uh, uh, individual. And so if you think about it, if you look at all the data center businesses that exist today, right, and you draw them back, they were all, they all, the genesis, every single one of them was 1997. Whether that's Equinix, Telecity, Redbus, uh, IX Europe in those days, Interaction, um, 1997, why? Because those, they were these locations of, of these buildings where 
fiber could come together and interconnect with other fiber providers and the carrier hotels of those days. And so I was sitting there at Storm paying that bill, prioritizing it because I know I couldn't make the business work and terminate traffic in, on other networks without access to that carrier hotel. Uh, and of course, um, you know, I came back and rather fortuitously, a, um, uh, again, you know, and I, I'll take, and it was lucky and I'll take luck every day. And it's been a big part of my career. But someone introduced me to somebody who, who was looking for a finance director for a company called Telecity. Mm. And uh, Telecity was a business uh, back in those days, which had been, you know, FTSE darling during the dot-com boom. But it was part of something called the Double 99% Club at that point in time, Joe, which was that it, its stock price had gone down by 99% and then gone down by 99% again. Wow. Uh, and, you know, it was it, it was turning over 20 million pounds with a profit of, of uh, or rather a loss of another 40 million. So its loss was double its revenue. And it was also nosediving. And of course, they were looking for a CFO. And of course, any CFO worth their salt was like running out the door you know, <laughs> and, and not, not being involved in such a disaster. Uh, and of course, what I saw was and indeed what the chief they turned they they taken the chief replaced it, the founder with a new chief exec, and what he saw, and what I saw was actually a business, where where if you if you ignore all of the stuff about the dot com dot com boom and bust, and if you if you actually focus on where the future was on the internet, uh, actually data centers were part of that future, and certainly from my perspective. I saw it as an opportunity, one, obviously, to write the, the sort of my own demons of the bankruptcy that I had been through and, and the mistakes that I had made. But also I saw an approach with data centers where if you're looking about long-term returns uh, and sustainable returns uh, in, in a business, then actually data centers were, were, were a real opportunity. But you had to actually build that business in the right way. And so, you know, I, I think I was the only fool out there that was ready to join a publicly listed company that was, that was on the roadmap to bankruptcy, whose invest, investment bank, Goldman Sachs at the moment, weren't, weren't picking up the phone to me uh, and, um, you know, uh, and try and right that ship. Uh, and, and, you know, through luck, judgment, grit, uh, and a great team of people, we managed to uh, to do that, uh, and you know, to, took it to EBITDA positive. Uh, it, uh, the year before I joined, it had got you know sixty percent churn across its entire portfolio, you know, so it was in this really difficult place. And a lot of the lessons, a lot of the mistakes that I'd learned at my at Storm, and the lessons that I'd learned, I, I you know, we applied certainly from 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 what I was doing, and then. We went into something novel, which was an area where we started to grow the business, uh, and this was like heading into 2005. And, and what was constraining us at the time was there was no access to capital. When you said, "I'm, you know, I'm in telecom or data," and you went to a bank and said, "You know, I, I want to build a data center. I want to build," you know, and they laughed us out of the room. They'll open the door for you. <laughs> you know exactly, and close the door on the way out. You know, and it was it was a really difficult time, particularly as as you're trying to, and, and you know, and if you think about 
the world, certainly the world that I've inhabited for the last 25 years, you've got customers, of course, uh, and then you've got talent. And then finally, in, in digital infrastructure, you've got capital and you've got these three components, customers, talent, capital, that they need to work together to actually uh, drive uh, these sort of superior returns that, that we were after. And each of the, that, those points in the triangle need to work together. Uh, you know, and if you don't have access to capital, forget it. You know, you're not going to build a data center. It doesn't matter how, you, how good you think you are. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that we did, you know, with the help of 3i and um, um, Oak Hill Capital, who, you know, I'd worked with to bring, you know, into that when we took Telecity, we took from a public company, we took them private uh, with Oak Hill and 3i's private equity money. Uh, and then we went to actually then start the process of, of consolidation in the European data center industry. And, and that was taking place around 2005. And there was another fellow called Mike Tobin who was running a company called uh, Redbus, which is another public company. And there was another fellow out there called uh, Guy Wilner who was running uh, IX Europe. Uh, you know, and, and prior to that, there were like 30, 30 data center businesses that, that had all dropped down into maybe five businesses in Europe that were running at that point in time. Every, all the others had gone bankrupt and no one was giving capital. And so we, um, you know, we went to try, you know, we, and there was obviously interaction as well. And so I remember we went to interaction, we want to merge with you, went to all these characters. Uh, and, and in the end, the, the, the deal that we managed to get off the ground was to merge with uh, Redbus and, and Mike Tobin. And it was this, this again, this, you know, Mike Tobin and Redbus was owned by uh, Russian Capital. It was also publicly listed. Uh, and we were owned by 3i and Oak Hill American Capital. Uh, you know, and and we got together, and there's this you know other uh, other entire thing that I learned about how to merge businesses, and I was a real novice at it. Uh, and you know, we got together, and and it was all about the strategy. And the, and you bring two businesses together, you bring two different cultures, uh, and of course, you know, Mike and I clashed. Uh, you know, his strategy was about about taking sort of uh, uh, doubling prices. Uh, and I was all about, okay, and, uh, and the chief exec that I worked with, we were all about, okay, we're trying to build long-term customer relationships. Uh, and, you know, I mean, he and I were like chalk and cheese in one sense. And, I, and, I, I, and at the end of that, uh, dis, that journey, uh, the shareholders went with Mike's vision. Uh, I didn't agree with it. And I, you know, and I, and I walked out the door. Uh, and it was, it was interesting because, because, uh, I learned there that there, there aren't, there aren't, there isn't just one solution to a problem. And, and Mike Tobin went on to build this amazing business and he merged Redbus and, uh, you know, the guys at Tele City, and they were really good people on both sides. Uh, and the journey that we, that he went on, uh, that, you, you know, you've already covered in the previous podcast, and it's an amazing journey, um, built this fantastic business. I know that I, you know, if I had been part of that, I'd have been more of an anchor than a than a than a helper because he and I think differently but it but it's truthful that you know, in the sense that, that you've got this sort of different different ways of building businesses uh, what what was interesting though was that you know turn full circle 10 years later in 2015 uh, I was sitting there across the table making a three billion dollar offer uh, <laughs> to purchase Telecity 
Uh, and what the, comes round comes round. <laughs> you know, and I was, you know, and, and, and I was like, there was, there was, I was really proud of, of vicariously of what, of what people there, and, and I'd worked with people there, obviously, to, to turn Telecity around. Uh, but to go back and say, okay, now I'm going to buy you back for three billion. Of course, I was really hacked off when Equinix came along and ate my lunch, or ate our lunch, and, and then bought Telecity in the end. Uh, you know, uh, but you know that that in itself were two, was a journey where it was semi was sort of circular in its way. And then I, I left um, uh, uh, Telecity and I, and you know had a, a one year non compete. And I remember at the time Dave Ruberg calling me and saying who was who was a chairman at, at Interaction come and join me and I had a one year non compete. And I went on and. Um, uh, uh, decided to 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 join um, uh, uh, an online gaming and gambling business, and that's a separate story on in itself, which uh, which was incredible during a, a journey when the law changed in the US and they needed help, and again uh, turning that around, and then you know I, I joined Interaction in 2007 as soon as my non-compete wore off, uh, I, I went to join Interaction and. Um, you know, worked with, uh, I joined a CFO in 2007 and Dave Ruberg went from chairman to CEO. And again, Dave was you know, a visionary in our industry. Uh, and we worked together to build the interaction, which I think in the end, you know, um, uh, I, I left in 2018 uh, and, and a year or two later was sold for eight or $9 billion. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was very proud of, of that journey. And I was there for 10, 11 years. But it was interesting, I, you know, in 2018, and I, I, I left, and one member of my family, my son, was 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 really ill, and you know, and I was like, okay, well, what do I do? And I'm traveling 70% of my time. I'm I'm hardly ever at home. You know, what am I about? Uh, and I decided that at the peak of my career, just to step back and say, F it. You know, it, it, this stuff doesn't matter. Yeah, family is more important. Yeah, and it's you know it's 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 really easy to say, but when the chips are down, you know I'm I am your run of the mill sort of narcissistic sociopath, you know don't you worry about that, Zhao. And um, and it really came to me, and I, and in the end I decided to to step back. And uh, and and again I learned a lot uh, in that time in three years, and in and the data center industry in that three years that I stepped back changed dramatically. Uh, and now, you know, I've come back and, and Mark Ganzi and John Mork at, at Digital Bridge and, and Charlie Bracken at Liberty Global, they came up with this amazing business idea uh, and, and one that really chimed with me. And, and you know, and, and we can talk about that, but, but Atlas Edge, which is, which is you know, and, and it's the one reason I decided to come out of retirement, because I was happy um, where I was doing the kind of things I was, which is nothing to do with, with technology and infrastructure. <laughs> What, what, what were you doing? Self curiosity. Well, I, I went and and I went to join the board of a of a um, a, a university which is focused on on uh, um, uh, health education mm -hmm. uh, and allied health. Uh, you know, a, a medical school, uh, but also you know teaching nurses and uh, physiotherapy courses and developing you know the future talent. And that really was exciting, and, and it's you know, and, and education has been a strong part of what I wanted to do. I, I went to, I went to Nepal, um, uh, and spent time trekking uh, in in the Himalayas through a friend of mine, a long thirty year old friend, uh, a friend for thirty years who, we were we were you know he was trying to develop a school in in Nepal, and I went to help him figure out uh, and the inauguration of of, of that school. 
and so you know and that was that was a different part of, of my life and thinking okay well, I, I, digital infrastructure was behind me i certainly didn't need the money or anything like that but but this concept of the edge and the concept of where that is and where it's going and what i you know i'm actually feel as giddy and as excited about where the data center industry is today as i did when when dave ruberg and i sat down in interaction thought about where the cloud was and what this concept of the cloud was and what you know his vision at that point in time and, and and you know how he wanted to develop that business then and i was like wow and i thought wow you know and, and i look at where i think i want to take atlas edge and and Zhao, believe me we're right at the beginning of another 10 to 20 year cycle ahead of us and it's really exciting yeah anyway, <laughs> I, I was going to say, if we can prolong the next dot-com bubble until I, I reach retirement as well, I'll really appreciate it. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, what is retirement, right? I mean, there's this. I know, no, no anymore. Of, of, you know, what's personal, what's private, you know, and do you have, I, I found out over, over time that actually, you know, you, some people work to live or, or live to work. I just want to live, you know, and, and it's all about how you choose to, to, to live your life. And because we spend so much of our time working. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, you know, that actually we need to figure it out uh, in terms of what is it that we're doing? Why is it that we're doing it? And, you know, what, 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 what is it that we're on and, and what journey that we're on? But, hmm. you know, it's, it's been, it's, let's just say it's been interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've got a lot, a lot of follow-up questions. I kept taking notes of the several different things. Um, I especially like the God's gift to infrastructure. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I think we found our yeah, don't, don't edit that bit out, I think. <laughs> but it was, it was yeah. funny how, how, you know, you end up believing your own rubbish, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's easy for us to get into a bubble um, and not see beyond that. I mean, we are seeing some of those examples now in the wider world, <laughs> um, namely towards Eastern Europe. But uh, I was just going to pick up just on, um, let, let's go back into the dot-com bubble just quickly. When you were 34 and you went through the bankruptcy and everything, um, obviously that kind of rocked your boats a lot. Um, yeah. And you went into a bit of a dark place and then you were lucky to have those two people around you that brought you back. Um, do you think if that happens today, do you think businesses are offering enough like advice and help to the employees they go through that especially board members as well because you do make a lot of decisions there's a lot of weight on your shoulders um in a period like that do you think the mental health issue today is more addressed than it was back then um to really help people go through a process like that and luckily we don't have that many processes like this um in the industry at the moment um it's, it's very rare um, but still it's that is a really important question and the truth of it is is that we don't do enough today, but it is far more recognized today as, as something that needs to be uh, dealt with and certainly needs to be addressed than, than it ever was when I was, you know, in my dim distant 30s. Uh, uh, and, you know, at least we, we can talk about it more today and, and the impact. I was, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, through my work at, at St. George's, uh you know one of the 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 factors and actually it was only yesterday that we were talking about this where you know the number one killer of an under 25 year old today is suicide mm -hmm. right? and, and if you think about that and you know and i, I don't want to take the conversation somewhere else but you know the the, the concept particularly the younger and I, and I feel for those that are just going through their own journeys 
right? The the we need to be helping them more in terms of, you know, it's okay to fail. It's okay to get it wrong. It's okay to make a poor decision. So long as you learn from it, so long as you, so long as you're actually understanding from it, and and don't be so hard on yourself. Uh, this this concept of perfection is a fallacy. Uh, there's no such thing. Um, uh, and so, um, avoiding that, avoiding this concept of it's got to be perfect, uh, avoiding ownership of your failings is different to avoiding being perfect, right? And so, uh, getting that getting that balance right, and having accountability for what you do is 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 important. Mm. Yeah. I thousand percent agree. Uh, but Josh, so you've talked about um, a little about about your upbringing um, and how it was tough sometimes to play rugby um, down in Africa, and then of course you went um, through quite a lot of the years as well. Who would you say? And you've already mentioned a few, but I'm going to ask anyway. Who would you say are some of the people that influenced you um, throughout your your life and career, um, especially in your, your during your teen years and university years, and then as you go into your career? You know, it, 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 it's funny because when you spend, when you have the kind of experience that I have, you know, <clears throat> I've always sort of been an outsider, whether that's, you know, an Asian in Africa, uh, uh, you know, some other uh, sort of spotty kid in boarding school. Uh, but from a, from an individual perspective, my father was a great influence. Uh, but then, you know, when I, at, at the age of 20, um, I found the love of my life, and I, and I come from a very sort of strong, sort of Hindu background. And it happened, to, you know, the love of my life happened to be Muslim. You know, my father said, who at that point was the rock of, and I, I went into engineering because he was an engineer, and he said, listen, I'm not gonna, you can't do that. Your life partner needs to can't be a Muslim, you know, and I, and 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 I thought. I think I think a strong part of me has been an independent, self-minded, maybe even pig-headed person, uh, and I I uh, went forward with with my wife, and I'm very glad. You know, that's been that person has been a rock to me, and so that individual has been a, a real formative person and has grounded me uh, uh, in terms of how I've developed, and you know. I didn't speak to my father again for 20 years, right? You know, more or less. Um, um, and so um, that, that's been part of it. But if you think of it from a, and, and it really shaped me in terms of who I am and how I thought about people. Mm. Uh, and then I also, um, but from a business perspective, it was the guys at, at, at Storm and really the, the people around me and, and I saw like I, I, there are people that influence me that I want to be like them, and there are people that influence me that I, I'd rather really, really, really rather not be like them. Uh, and as you go through these experiences, uh, I really would like to be like the the Ramesses and the Bruno Devanzos of the world that were that had a great deal of integrity in their approach and a great deal of of, of empathy in how they thought about about building businesses. You know, and and truthfully. Uh, Dave Ruberg, who has been a real visionary leader uh, at Interaction, who is, like most entrepreneurs, really difficult to work with. Uh, you know, and there, you know, there are different types of leaders, and you've got innovative CEOs, 
and uh, and that's you know, types like Rubergs and and the Mike Tobins of the world. Uh, and then you've got other leaders that maybe I might fall into, which are more sort of analytical leaders in terms of their approach. Uh, and but but they've really you know helped me shape, particularly as I right at the beginning, as we're starting to think about digital infrastructure and what it really means, and what and and how to attack markets and, and segments. And so he was a big influence, uh, you know, as, on me as I as I went forward as well, hmm. and on the industry, by the way. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, David has done some amazing stuff over the years. Um, it's someone I haven't had the pleasure to meet yet. It's one of the few names that I haven't <laughs> uh, shaken hands with, but it's um, I, I would love to to meet him uh, and just have a chat, uh, even off camera, because um, I think he's, he's a very interesting. He's got a very interesting background. Well, you know, he's. Uh, <laughs> In the in the ten years that almost eleven years that I was at inter, an interaction, he fired me three times. Right, you know. So as a CFO <laughs> CEO relationship, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's it, he he was a character. But I, you know, in my own right, I'm also a character sometimes, and uh, as particularly as a CFO, and I learned a lot of things about what I want to do. And you know, sometimes there's a clash. Hmm. But 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 equally, there there are you know, this business interestingly. There's been a lot of it about a, a Wild West component to it, but where we are today, and, and so therefore there you've got these characters, particularly that have built the business right from the sort of you know mid to late 90s to now. The, the other person that I would mention is Peter Van Camp, who's like been a leader oh, yeah. globally. You know, I've got a funny story with him. <laughs> and so you know, and, and I'm and I'm privileged to, to be speaking to you about my my story, but there are there are. Uh, right at the beginning, as I said, there are greater minds than, than me that, that have built yeah. this business for sure, and and uh, and built this this industry. And, and another one more recently is Mark Gansey as well, who's built it from a different different side, you know, and who I respect a great deal, and we're working with now. Hmm. But you know, if if you if you think about that, I I have like through osmosis just tried to to learn uh, from everywhere, and that's my. If you think about my, my thesis, you know. Uh, if you accept that that as I do re remember my you know my my uh, um, my tutor from university saying you know Josh yeah, you're a bit thick uh, you know <laughs> I was like well what's the way for well copy man you know if if other people have great ideas if if you know there's not not a bad thing and it's not a bad business perspective to say okay well I'm ready to accept and, and take ideas, take great things. I want to be challenged and take great ideas from other people, work with them and help them. And then through them myself, make it better. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's a great way to innovate in itself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you need people around you. It's probably a very basic notion, but it's the worst people you can have around you is yes, people. Um, I, I love having people around me that say no, and they say we should be doing this a different way. And then it's up to you to fight the case or not. But, but you know, that's how the brand is going to evolve. Uh, it's how the business plan is going to evolve. It's by people having interaction um, and talking. Um, so it's, it's fascinating you say that, and you're absolutely right, of course. But th there's two things, and that's that's the the. Sometimes people think that having a different opinion means that that you somehow are challenging somebody, and it's a it's yeah. some kind of ego fight. Uh, but in, a, in in my opinion. If, if, if you're looking for yes men around you, then you know, that's fine. And there are plenty of businesses that are run like that. But those businesses that are most successful, in my opinion, are those businesses that work as teams that are ready, ready to challenge consensus thinking. You know, mm -hmm. and I, 
but equally, I, I also learned as I stepped away from the in infrastructure space and I went to, you know, I, you go you go to other education systems, and you look at you know like St George's, they're seventy percent female, uh, academic population, fifty five percent black American minority ethnic, and you look at that diversity of thought, you know, and it provides for a real real way of innovating. So it's not only challenging each other. But it's accepting a diversity, and that, and I'm a work in progress on that. I think both at Alice Edge and elsewhere, throughout my entire career. But I, I've, uh, you know, it is part of. It's got to be part of our future uh, in the digital infrastructure space. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, when you bring all sets of backgrounds into the, on the table, um, you're definitely going to have a much more diversified conversation. Um, there's a and I'm talking about walks of life, um, countries, religions, orientations. Um, skin colors. If you bring all everyone together, you're going to get a much better soup of ideas than if you just stick to one um, type of um, of talent. Let's call it that way. Um, but that, that's just, we'll, we'll talk about talent in the second part. I just wanted to ask you because, of course, your career was very much focused on the, the financial side of things, so being a CFO and all that. Uh, and now you came back as a chairman, um, and I think you've also you're also involved with Digital Bridge itself, um, even though Atlas Edge is part of the Digital Bridge portfolio. Um, but you're the chairman of Atlas. What would you say, and not getting too much into the Atlas business right now, we'll get to that, into that in a second, uh, but what would you say are the main differences between the CFO and the chairman, um, at least on what you're doing? You know, it, it, it's funny. Uh, the, the, in, the, there's two components. One is that there's not that much difference in one sense. Uh, and let, let me explain. So, a CFO, as I said, you know, as I said earlier, that I, I I've been very happy to be the sort of outsider uh, and under, you know, I've, I've not, you don't go to all and go to all the conferences. I spent a lot of time focused on, on, you know, on on raising the profile of the industry within the investor space as opposed to within the industry space itself. Uh, and as as a CFO. Great CFOs are operational in nature. They're running the business. They are engaging with the business. So they have a deep understanding of the business. It's not just about the numbers, right? You know, those that are focused on the numbers are great accountants, great CFOs about running businesses, uh, but coming at it from an analytical perspective. And great partnerships are innovative CEOs and uh, strongly operational CFOs. They, you know, you'll find those as being great businesses. And it's interesting, as you get to, to the chairman role, uh, having that analytical capability, but also the mentoring component uh, of, of a CFO's role and, and working together with the uh, CEO, and I'm really privileged to be working you know, at this edge with, with Giuliano, who's, who's an amazing, innovative CEO. Uh, I, I, you know, the, the, the chairman's role is really one, you've got to be able to step away from the detail you know that that's in somebody else's hands now but it's to be able to take a much wider perspective and take all of those bits of information and innovation and then be able to just you know have a guiding hand in particular and there's a difference between a, an executive chairman which is which has got a little bit more of an executive role versus a chairman and my role as executive chairman as i said is really to work in partnership um, uh, with the ceo and the management team uh, but it is about taking that step back, taking all the skills and, uh, of analysis and mentoring, 
that you learn during that journey and then just stepping back and then working in partnership. So it's, it, there's more in common. And, and I'm told, and I, I hope this is, there's some truth in this, that some of the best chairmen actually come from the, the, CF, the CFO to chairman <laughs> sort of journey is, is a good one. And, and I, I'm following in some good footsteps in the past. Yeah, you definitely have the, the, the background. <laughs> uh, and George, before we, we just close this first part of, um, of our conversation, a question that I ask to everyone is, and actually for this, this is going to be very interesting for you because you just came back um, into the business, is what's something that's non-negotiable for you in business? What's something you would not open a hand off? Um, so if Mark Kenzie, when Mark Kenzie called you and said, I want you to come and work for me, um, what's the one thing that you said, but... I would not open hand off this, or I will not accept this. Um, what, what's that thing for you? You know, that, that's, I've, I've thought about that before in terms of what is it, what is it that it really matters to me? And, and obviously, you know, everybody will say, and it's important, you've got to have integrity, you've got to have honesty, but truthfully, Zhao, you know, who's going to go around and say, yeah, I don't, I don't mind if it's not integrity, if there's no integrity. Yeah, and I don't no, no, he's going to say, at least not. A record. little bit dishonest, you know. <laughs> you know so let's just you know, <laughs> table stakes for doing business, right? Uh, and so so parking that to one side, what do I really, where do I really want to work and what do I really want to do and what's important to me? And in truth, it's all down to being fair, right? That's what's important to me. And, and it, that sounds a little bit trite, but, but what does that really mean? It's not about equality, right? So it's not about being equal, it's about being fair. And when I, when I get into businesses, I wanna work with people that actually, and for people that actually understand that, you know, it's not about getting that, that deal where we're gonna rip everybody off around us and actually get the best possible deal and we're gonna raise our prices through the roof and all that, and, you know, or we're going to, work these work our employees uh uh you know it, it, to the bone and you know and, and all that sort of thing uh fairness for me is about okay i, I want to actually work in an environment i want to lead uh, in a way that actually in that lens which says we're going to actually do something really good here and we're going to work in partnership with our customers with our employees with our investors uh, uh, to have a fair distribution of that reward uh, and engagement, and and when you really and as you as you apply that lens to everything that you do, and as I apply that to everything I do, it allows you actually to rank your priorities uh, and to operate. And so, yeah, I won't work with anybody that I don't think comes at it in a fair way. Okay, um, I mean, I I think fairness is a very very important um, pillar. Um, of being part of any business and building a business. So I, I, I totally agree with you on that one as well. Uh, but Josh, before we continue, here's just a quick message from our sponsor, um, Portman Partners. Are you seeking great business minds for your digital infrastructure business? Portman Partners is a unique international executive search firm dedicated to finding the leaders for the digital infrastructure industry. Led by Portman founder and senior partner Peter Hannaford and chairman David Pye, Portman works with clients around the world in the internet and cloud infrastructure sector. Portman has a vast network of contacts around the globe and has placed senior leaders at many of the world's most prestigious organizations in the business. From investors to hyperscale operators, regional colors, designers, construction firms and plants and equipment manufacturers, 
Portman has the talents and experience required to fill a wide range of C-level and leadership positions. No other executive search firm specializing in the digital infrastructure sectors can match Portman's knowledge, industry expertise or the worldwide connections needed to conduct efficient and confidential searches that will result in successful placements. If you want to be at the top of your sector, getting that reportment is the best in theirs. To learn more and connect with Portman via their websites, visit www.portmanpartners.com. Welcome back to the second part of the Great Business Minds podcast episode with Josh Joshi. Um, Josh, in the first part, we were very personal. We got to learn a lot about your, your background, where you came from, how you built your career over the years. Um, now let's focus more on the industry of today and tomorrow uh, and what you're doing uh, right now at Atlas Edge as well. So maybe to begin with, my question, I know we, I just said we, let's focus on today and tomorrow, but <laughs> let's go back into that dot-com bubble conversation again. Um, there's always this conversation in the corridors of every event you go to, um, and luckily I managed to get back at events after COVID. Um, there's always a conversation like, oh, one day there's going to be a bubble, one day there's going to be a bubble. What's your view? Is that bubble coming? Is it far away? Is it too even too early? There's no signs about it. Is it too early to talk about it um, in our space? You know, Jean, that's that's a really good question. The start point there, though, is is you know what do we really mean by by a bubble, right? And our industry has matured a great deal since since you know I started in it in in about 1995, 96, and and um, you know, if you look at the characteristics of, of, of that bubble, it was all about allocating capital, a, a build it and they will come kind of perspective. Uh, and, uh, you know, people just got way out over their skis. You know, what's interesting is that, you know, we talked about l loads of people that were right there then, you know, uh, that are still here now. Right. So if you think about that industry that, that we are today, there's a lot of people that are still in it that have those lessons learned. You know, when we're not and I'm a firm believer right now, we're not anywhere near in the context of a bubble around our demand and around where we're going and what this industry is doing. Um, uh, you know, I, I think there are some pretty rich valuations out there uh, as we sit here today. Mm -hmm. And I think that the industry is. Um, I have a sort of I have I have a sort of perspective, which is that I stepped away from 2018 through till you know 2021, right? Yeah. You know, and so the industry I stepped I stepped away from is actually quite a lot different now than it was as I've arrived back. It's a different industry to some extent, you know. And there's and, and think about it, you know, there are there are. You know, 100 megawatt and one gigawatt builds going on out there, which are, you know, entire power stations of infrastructure and architecture. And so I worry about that. Uh, and indeed, there's some there's some pushback, uh, you know, you, you've seen the, the sort of Dutch regulations pushing back on those kind of builds. Uh, and there's been a lot of a, a lot of sort of new types of investors coming in uh, that are looking at looking at it from from a. That, that infrastructure spend, but from a different perspective than from a more of a real estate perspective. Uh, but no, I, I, I think this is all about how the industry chooses to allocate its capital. And, and certainly what I'm witnessing is very careful capital allocation models right now. 
uh, and so no, no bubble. Hmm. And as I said, as I said before, I, I really, I am so excited about about where we are today, and and what the potential future journey for us is. And uh, and you know, the sector, truthfully, has only just begun. We're only we're only sort of 20, 25 years old right now. Uh, we're right right early in the, in the sector's development. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, and so the industry is changing so much, and you mentioned how much it's changed in the last two, three years. Uh, I mean, COVID really speeded up things into a completely different gear as well. Um, how do you kind of see the role of the the, the entrepreneur um, in our sector today? Because building a business 20 years ago was one thing. Building a business 15, 10 years ago was a different thing. But in the last five years and even the last two, three years, and I mean, Atlas Edge is, is proof of that, um, things have changed a lot. So how would you compare the changes that the entrepreneur has gone through um, and what does an entrepreneur in the digital infrastructure space needs today, apart from capital, of course. <laughs> capital is always going to be hurt. Yeah, without, without money, can't, can't walk, can't go anywhere here. <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, the world, or at least the, the way businesses run today, particularly if you're a young entrepreneur, you know, my advice to you, my advice to you would be have patience. And it's not about... It's not about patience in terms of there's a, there's a, you know a lot of uh, there's stories out there you know you build an app and suddenly you know you want to be you know a millionaire and doesn't and happen to everyone though forward. and it just doesn't happen like that and you know I sort of feel that you know every grey hair on my head and you know if you can see me right now there's a lot of them every single one represents a mistake uh, that that I've made and failure that that's come along and and so you know. In one sense, nothing's changed. Right? As an entrepreneur, you need grit. You need the ability to to have have a belief in yourself and to actually have that view in terms of where you're going. And to do that, you have to have a real understanding, in my opinion. And if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to have a real understanding of what it is that you're trying to do. You, you know, you can't be a solution looking for a problem. You've got to be figuring out where it is you're going and what it is. That you're going to be trying to do and whether that's in digital infrastructure or any other walk in life if you've got that view uh, uh, then i think that you know then perseverance and patience is what what you know i think the entrepreneur today really needs mm. and indeed has needed for a long time mm. okay interesting um and now i mean how does it all translate into atlas let's talk about atlas um so you mentioned that the the, the idea and the project the strategy is quite innovative is quite new quite um it's only at the beginning, really. I mean, we're just at the tip of the iceberg of the whole edge, um, kind of the global deployment. Talk, talk us through the projects. I mean, what, what's the plan? Well, I mean, let's, let's if you think about um, uh, the way that our uh, industry has developed, you know, remember, you know, go back to, to my early days and, uh, you know, remember what I said, you had these, these you know, I was building fiber, I needed to interconnect with other people and peer the IP traffic, you know, so you had to build, you know, we went into these carry hotels so that we could, we could interconnect. But what, what happened was, was that, you know, we, we were able to then, as those uh, data centers then developed, they became these centers of highly connected environments. Uh, and then, you know, what, what Dave, Rub Dave Ruberg and I was doing at, at Interaction was to say, okay, well, we take that. Uh, these carry hotels, but if we if we then take that and actually bring in the cloud architecture uh, and and create as it, it as an on ramp to cloud compute, 
uh, then actually you start to actually make use of these environments and, and think about what's happening, right? You've got these, if, if, if you look at that, you've had this journey where, uh, you know, you've gone from sort of mainframe where the compute and uh, application to the software and the user have been in one place together. Uh, and actually when I was an engineer, you know, that's exactly what I would do. I would program mainframes out at, at my university and you'd have to actually physically go in to actually program the mainframe. When, you know, sort of Bill Gates came along and he, he took that compute architecture and put it on your desk. Uh, and actually the software and the hardware came onto your desk. And then you go, you go, you fast forward there. And then the iPhone came along in 2007 and it became mobile. And then you take the compute architecture right out into the cloud. And we're on this other, we're on this other journey. So if, if you look at that, You've got these sort of different locations for compute, uh, software, and the user where, where the workloads are being generated. But the concept has always been the same. You know, what customers have always wanted has been where is the cheapest location for me to manage my workload and yet at the same time maintain an, an adequate level of performance for, for what I want to achieve. And in the data center industry, wherever you are, if you don't know it, that's the question that we're all trying to answer. And that's certainly the question that your customers are trying to figure out. And um, uh, you know, if, 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 you, if you're trying to figure out where the value is in all of that, you just need to follow the photon from the, the start point, which is where that workload is being created to where it's then being processed and how it's being managed through the network. And that's, that's the genesis of Atlas Edge in terms of that thought process and, and the concept where, you know, at this journey, what, why has that been happening? Why have we been through this journey? Why, why are we doing all of this? And um, these workloads, this data has always been real time in nature, but as this data has been becoming more you know, exploding uh, in, its, uh, in its use, you've had different applications wanting to engage with that data. And so the cloud footprint has been about actually, you know, well, we're going to manage that data in the cloud. Companies like Equinix and Interaction have, have then put in uh, 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 servers closer to where the users have managed it and done, provided them with response time sensitive application dynamics to actually manage that data in, 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 in that environment. And so if you're using your, uh, I don't know, um, uh, social media platform, the pictures that you will, you know, of my dog that I took a year ago, they're sitting in Arizona or Sweden hmm. uh, right now. And if I want to access them, I don't mind waiting a second yeah. for it to come onto my phone, right? Whereas the stuff that we're, you and I are doing right now is more real time in nature. Uh, and um, uh, that needs a sort of different type of dynamic. And, you know, the photons that are arriving you know, from my eyeballs to your eyeballs, Yao, are likely to be going through an interaction or telecity data center in the UK right now, uh, and then through some cloud platform uh, on Zoom. And so, you know, that if you follow that photon, that's what's happening. Now, I'd remind, you know, and you will be the right to remind me, Josh, there's no edge architecture between me and you right now, you know, and today's architecture is quite capable as, as the last, um, uh, you know, um, COVID environment has suggested, you know, that architecture has been quite comfortable managing 
these real-time interactions that we're doing. What's changing is that as I see the development of the future, what we're seeing, what we're going to see is not a Josh Zhao engagement, but a computer to computer engagement. And that, that you know, whether we're talking about, you know, IoT or, or, or um, uh, you know, remote cars, yeah, they're the standard ones, but there are, there are many others, uh, artificial intelligence uh, uh, and, and uh, other components of computers needing to compute, uh, talk to computers, both from where the data and where the workloads are being generated, which are generally close to the edge, right back into the center to where those data and workloads are being processed. And you, you've got computers talking to computers where actually the latency or the time it takes for that photon to be processed is critical. And so therefore that compute architecture needs now to have, it's a much smaller component, but that smaller component needs to actually take place closer to the edge. And, and, and the edges, you know, it's like the cloud was in 2007, you know, go and define the edge for me, please. And you'll get, we'll speak to 20 of us in our industry, you'll get 20 different answers. You still get them. <laughs> I can tell you that. And, and, and in my opinion, the edge is the closest point of IP, the closest point on the core network to where uh, that uh, workload is being generated and is needed to be used, right? And, and, you know, and, and think about that demand architecture. By the end of this decade, there's going to be more devices connected to the internet than humans have ever existed on this planet in all of time, right? And so think about that interaction that's be go gonna be going on. And the vast majority of, you know, and, and it's not just humans, it's all of these things are connected to the internet and their devices connected to the internet needing action and engagement in a real-time environment. And so, you know, we have, we have this extraordinary journey ahead of us. And so if you think about that definition of the edge, then remember what I said, you know, right at the beginning, I, I walked into an office at BT and I said to them, you know, we, can we connect our platform with you uh, and, you know, in your central office? Uh, and uh, BT laughed me out the room. Uh, uh, and the vision here, and it's not mine, although I will, take, I will take credit for it, but it's not hard. <laughs> it, it's the vision of Mark Gansey and Mike Fries and Charlie Brack and the guys at Digital Bridge and Liberty Global, right? Who actually came together and said, there's another way of doing this. You know, how can we create long-term value for us and our customers? And when Mark Gansey and John Mark explained to me, and I, and I was, uh, explained to me this, uh, this concept, look, we're gonna partner with one of the most innovative uh, uh, you know, media providers uh, globally and particularly in Europe right now. And we're going to get this sort of unique access to their cable uh, uh, network platform in a way that's not been done before ever. Uh, and, you know, Josh, we understand data centers, that's Mark Gansey and John Mork and these guys that, that truly get it, like it's in their DNA. Um, and you know we're going to actually then take that and then marry it with our with our investment uh, in the and our view on on the cult platform and you know, obviously we were working on cult a long time since before you know before we announced it and we're going to take that together and bring the sort of the colo data center plus this 
this architecture on net architecture that we're going to bring together and we're going to take we're going to take these uh, work computes and we're going to marry them and i was blown away by that and it was like you know and it's not isn't it is a real estate play of course it is a real estate play in one sense but it's not a real estate not a real estate play the value in this is about the way that that architecture is going to actually be able to target the customers and no one no one is being able to deliver this in the way that that, that we're able to do that right now and you know who, who's out there saying you know we've got 100 locations plus access to 700 more you know in five countries in europe today predominantly the the the, the uk uh, and you know our ambition is quite substantial to grow that to the thousands uh, and that will make a big difference uh, and, and if you think about the way that market is going to develop over the next 10 years and you think about my definition of the edge and, and the kind of way that we're looking at these these problems atlas edge is on an extraordinary journey uh, and i think we're really well positioned to take advantage of the market okay and then of course atlas edge um, is born in europe um, and you've just mentioned you wanted to expand to thousands um, of points on the map um, is he going to stick to europe or i guess most likely you will go beyond european borders well you know it, it'll take time and one thing i've learned you know in uh, in in my career is that you you need to prove the point you need to focus your ambition and, and you know our, our focus today uh, is going to be europe uh, mm. and to actually develop that business and europe is is an interesting uh, you know is an interesting market and there is meaningful opportunity both in terms of the way that there's you know internet take up uh, in the market and the way that that market is developed enough to actually take us take it on to to the next the next step to to the to the edge if you like and so you know we think that that's where there's significant opportunity i think as this develops over time uh, our ambition is greater than but right now our focus is uh, in europe europe okay um, what are, what other markets <laughs> will you be going to within europe because um, you've recently acquired those 10 sites from um, from colt um is there anything that you can tell us or <laughs> what, what you know we're in uh, 11 countries today so just think you know we started our business you know six months ago mm -hmm. you know and we're in uh, you know 11 countries we're in 13 locations we we've got uh, a combination of what you know people might call traditional colo and and sort of proximity edge locations uh and um uh we will continue to actually invest in those markets so so we've made that bridgehead into these markets and i think we'll continue to in in, in the short term to focus on investing in these markets that we're that we're in right now uh, and to really uh, build on the 700 customer relationships that we have today and to in advance those relationships and that engagement in those markets so i, I don't think you know with, with a footprint like that i don't think there's anything that's obviously missing uh, in terms of where we want to go geographically in Europe. And we look at other markets opportunistically, but our, our focus is on the markets that we're in today. And you certainly have the backing as well. Um, and, and speaking of which, how does um, Atlas Edge kind of interact with the other Digital Bridge uh, company por portfolio of companies? Because um, Digital Bridge has 25, 35, I can't even remember. <laughs> there's a lot of different brands in there with towers and five and data centers, 5G. Um, there's a lot of different brands, but so things like branches, data centers, um, how do you guys interact with each other within the portfolio? 
amazingly well. You know, and, I, and I'm an operating partner at Digital Bridge. Uh, and why did I, you know, why did I decide to join them? And, I, and you know, I've had many uh, opportunities in the last three years as I stepped away from the industry uh, of other uh, institutions coming uh, to, you know, knocking on my door, let's just say. And the reason why I joined uh, Digital Bridge is because it is because they have what I regard to be a unique combination, right? You look at the roster of of talent that that, and I'm not just talking about investment talent in terms of the the sort of you know banking talent that they have. I'm talking about operating talent, and there's this mix of operating expertise right from the very top, from Mark Ganzi down, of operating expertise together with execution expertise in terms of financial execution. And, and if you think about, about um, investment funds out there that are able to put their, their money where their mouth is and execute uh, and to be agile in the way that they are, there is nobody out there. It was, it was like a, a no-brainer. As soon as, as soon as they came to me and, and explained to me um, uh, what uh, they were doing. And then, and then what I've learned is is that there's this community of uh, um, like-minded CEOs and chairmen and businesses that are operating in similar areas, but not treading on each other's toes. Uh, you know, and where, where like Databank, which is this amazing edge business in the US, where you know they're doing something very similar, but but slightly different, but but also working in a similar way. You have this amazing opportunity to cross-fertilize, and so again. You know, not only not only you know if 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 we're successful at Atlas Edge, it's not just because of Atlas Edge's management. It's also because of all the help and expertise that we get from, you know, the guys, uh, our fellow sort of chief execs, and this this sort of like family of of people, both at Digital Bridge and truthfully also at Liberty Global. Hmm. Um, we we have a hidden advantage there that uh, that many of our peers out there that are in the industry just do not. Uh, and so again, I'm, I'm very excited about our journey. Yeah, I mean it's it's all about talent, really, um, and the talent that you've got in your within your remit um, is quite extraordinary. Um, and speaking of which, because I mean you you mentioned before the three pillars being customers, talent, and capital. Uh, I think we've kind of covered a little bit the customer side and the capital side. On the talent side, how what's your view of the industry right now? Because this conversation keeps going on and on and on. But do you think people are talking and doing the walk, or are they just talking and not walking at all? Um, around bringing new talent um, and educating a new generation to come into the sector. Well, do you struggle to find talent as well? Let me put that out there. Do you struggle well, to find we talent? Do struggle to find talent? We really do. I mean, I, you know, uh, I'm very lucky. I've been able to bring together a very talented um, uh, uh, management team together. You know, these guys have been in their industries, been very successful, and decades uh, uh, in companies like Liberty Global, in Interaction, in Google, in literally decades there. Uh, but they decided to stop very successful careers to step off and to join me at Atlas Edge. And that, that says something about where we're going. You know, we are sort of ethnically diverse. You know, I think we could be better in terms of our gender diversity. And I truly believe, and this is, this is critical and, and, I, and I've learned this as, as I've worked with people like you know at St George's in terms of the talent that they bring through and the diversity that I've seen in action uh, is that you know we've got to do a better job and the industry is, is not right now and I'll hold up my hand and, and you know accept my share of responsibility uh, for that 
Um, you know, we've got to be doing a better job in in helping uh, the younger generation sort of engage and be educated, but also to learn about, you know, our, our industry. And it is not easy. You know, we are not, you can't be, as soon as we put a dollar in the ground, a euro in the ground, you can't move it out again, right? And so we're not an agile business. And so, you know, as you make decisions to allocate capital to how to build, you know, these things that, you know, they're not apps on a phone. You can't make a, you know, a version 2.0. Once it's in the ground, it's there. You've got to figure out how to make use of it. And, and equally, why put it in the ground if someone else has already done it and you can reuse it, which is, again, you know, and, and the sort of bringing in that new talent. And, and one of the things that, that you know, I saw were people saying, Josh, you know, why don't we, we can reuse existing architecture but repurpose it for you know this edge footprint, whereas today it's not really being used at all. Uh, as opposed to, you know, asking to power, you know, building you know, all that concrete and that and that and that stuff that's going to generate loads of carbon, you know, to build a shiny new data center uh, and to do it in a different way. And so, it requires new thinking. Um, I, I love the stuff that Dean Nelson has been doing in terms of the infrastructure masons and you know all of that sort of stuff that's going on in the industry. So. The industry is thinking about it. We've got a long way to go um, uh, before we start walking the walk. Yeah. But you know, the, the, the half half the problem is recognizing the problem. So yeah, which which I guess in a way it is being done um, by a majority of the the, the sector today. Um, but Josh, um, to to start driving us towards the end of this episode, I was going to ask you what's been now outside of the business world, outside of Atlas Edge. Um, more back into you as a, as a person, as a businessman, what's been the best and the worst advice um, you've ever received throughout your, your journey on this planet? <laughs> oh, that's, that, that's interesting. You know, I mean, that's, obviously, I think probably one of the best advices that I've got was from Professor Gent, who said, you know, Josh, don't, don't do engineering. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was right, I guess. <laughs> you've done well. But I, you know, I, I, I have to say that, truthfully, from a business perspective, um, it was right at the beginning when, when it was, you know, when Ramesh and Bruno Devanza said, "Listen, mate, uh, you know, take ownership of your of your failings, but you know, treat them, treat them as a learning experience, you know, and it's it's okay to fail. It's what's not okay is to think that that's the end, uh, and." Um, uh, if I hadn't made that, and I was very lucky to have actually, um, you know, received that advice early in my career. You know, others actually, you know, made like that from a DNA perspective. But as I said, you know, I've had to learn it and, and uh, figure it out and, and learn from other people. And that was that was extraordinary for me. Um, uh, it, it, it's interesting. I, I might add one other uh, to that. Uh, and it's a core part of this idea uh, about who I am from a business perspective and what it what it means uh, to be good at what you do. And Dave Ruberg once said to to me, um, Josh, if you really want to be good at this, it, you know, you've just got to do what you say you're going to do. That's it, right? And and I have to admit, when you really think about it, whether it's trust that you want from somebody, whether it's uh, honesty or whether it's uh, um, you know, to engage in a way that 
that you know is going to be successful if you want to engage with your customers uh, uh, in a successful way then the truth is if you just do what you say you're going to do that that ticks so many boxes uh, along that line and if you're not going to be able to make it then you know what have the honesty uh, and the strength of your own relationship with whoever it is that you've made that commitment to and have that respect of that person to go back to them and say, you know what, I can't do it. And I'm going to have to reassess here and, and rethink it. And I've done that many on many occasions since I've had that conversation with, with Dave Ruberg and he gave me that advice. And, and it has made a difference to my career hmm. uh, in, terms of, in terms of the success there. Yeah. And, and sometimes I guess people don't understand. And I guess it also comes with life experience, especially younger people sometimes don't understand it. It's such a simple thing sometimes to say this is not going to happen before something bad happens and that can really save a lot of I mean I'm going to use the word mess mess is not the right word but it can save a lot of problems um, once things don't happen um, and I think just being open with people is the the, the best way um, the best way for it uh, and of course the advice around like it's not the end that's I think that's very strong as well I mean we've got a saying back home um, so this is southern European which is a bit darker which says the only thing you can't change is death so essentially <laughs> meaning just get up and go out there, just sort it out, because it's not the end of it. It's, um, the, the, the story is not written, not until... Exactly. Uh, but it's up to you to write it. Um, so talking about writing, and la last question, I promise, I could carry on talking to you the whole day, but I, I've actually got a thunderstorm coming, so I'm quite worried about the noise <laughs> that's going to start soon, because it's start raining now. So uh, I was going to ask you, uh, what's um, like your favourite quotes? Um, I'm going to say ever. I'm not going to say right now. I'm going to say ever. Your favorite quote that has stuck with you over the years and uh, by who and why, of course. You know, that, that, there, there are actually two that, that immediately came to mind when you posed the question. The, the first one is more about me than anything else, right? Uh, remember I said, I'm, uh, you know, you're, you're one of the mill narcissistic psychopaths, but, you know, the, there was a, there's a something called opinion is the lowest form of human knowledge right and um that was i think that was uh, bill i don't quite know who, who said that but i i believe it was bill bullard and he was quoting plato and uh, and and there was a second part to that which is important you know m so therefore if, if you say that what's what's the most important uh, uh part of human knowledge and that's empathy which is the highest form of human knowledge because because opinion requires no accountability uh, and no understanding, but empathy requires you to like suspend your ego and live in another person's shoes. You know, and I and from my perspective, those were words that really. And if you're going to, if I believe, if I was ever going to make it, I needed to actually focus on. You know, it's it's data led. It's not opinion led. And believe me, I've got an opinion on every subject. <laughs> uh, uh, but you know, in the end, when you're making your decision. You've got to try and figure it out. And also, as you engage with people, you've got to figure out where they're coming from. And that serves me well in life as well as in business. And the other one, and I, and I will, you know, uh, although you asked me for the most important one, there are two that stick to mind. And, and the other one, which is really important, I think, um, for me, is that, you know, some people are so poor. They're so poor that all they've got is money. Right. And, and, you know, particularly when you're young and as I was as I was like climbing up the slippery pole, 
I always thought that, you know, the most important thing to, that defines success is actually, you know, money. How much has you got in your bank and where is that going? And, and actually it turns out that through the experiences that I've been through, actually it's experiences that enrich where you, where you end up and what, what goes on and, and the people that you have around you and your family. And again, I know that that's, that's hard and everybody has to come to their own conclusion because, of course, if you've got to make your mortgage next month, that's just, you know, that's really, you know, I can hear, I can feel people reaching through the screen and screen and slapping me across the face. But you know, the tr that's the truth, right? In my opinion, and, and in all those years, that that it's it's not about the money. And indeed, in business, the most successful people that I have come across, and indeed I attribute my own success to, has not been about trying to figure out how to make that next dollar. It's been about something else. It's been about driving something else about how to build a business, about how to create that next platform. What is it going to be? What have I got to do? And if, you know, the money is just a yardstick of, you know, obviously, is it going to have longevity? If it's going to have longevity, then, you know, what comes in has got to be more than what goes out. But for success, it's got to be, it's got to be more than just money. And, and that, that has served me well uh, throughout my entire business career. Yeah, I certainly have a lot of like keywords coming up, such as trust, respect, experience, um, fairness, um, contacts. Um, I know owning it, um, as in owning up to your mistakes. Um, and I think those those are the ingredients that can really build someone's career. Um, and then money will money will come from it. Um, if those things are ticked, if those boxes are ticked, money will come anyway. Um, well, Josh, Josh, thank you so much for talking to the Great Business Minds podcast. Um, it's been a pleasure having you. Um, I think we'll have another episode with you at some point <laughs> because there's so much to talk about, um, especially as Atlas Edge um, takes over the world, or at least Europe for now, but then in the world. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Jean, for humoring me. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, our conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And don't forget to review and share this episode and follow the Great Business Minds podcast on all your favorite streaming and social media platforms. You can find the links in the podcast description. Thank you again to our sponsor, Portman Partners, the leading executive search firm for the digital infrastructure sector. Portman finds the talent you need to protect and enrich your assets. They get it right the first time, every time. Do subscribe to the podcast and we invite you back again for the next episode of the definitive show for the business of digital infrastructure, the Great Business Minds podcast. See you then.